Please take your Bibles and join me in Acts 28. We're going to be looking at uh, Acts 28, beginning in verse 17, going all the way through um, nearly the end, Acts 28 or 29, depending on how you count it, which I'll explain in a moment. Uh, the title of our sermon is They Will Listen. Keywords for our worshipers in training are Jews, Gentiles, and judgment. And you can find the text if you're using the blue ESV Bibles in the seat backs. You can find our text on page 937. We're in Acts 28, beginning in verse 17. They will listen. If you've not heard of uh, the poem, To a Mouse, by Robert Burns, written in 1785, I trust you nevertheless have heard of One line from the penultimate stanza of that poem. The best laid schemes of mice and men often go awry. Well, that line, seemingly ever true, has proved useful for me this week as I've contemplated the end of the book of Acts. My intention, as many of you know, was to finish the book of Acts with you today. That intention, however, has been thwarted. I may be the culprit... Nevertheless, a thwarting has occurred. I realized in the study this week that to attempt to finish Acts today would prove an injustice to the verses before us today as well as to the entire book that we have been spending the last ten months in together. And so I want you to think of today's sermon and next week's sermon, as a two-part conclusion to this book. Today, we're going to look at verses 17 through 28, and next week, we'll look at 31, or 30 and 31. So, if you're here and you're terribly sad about Acts coming to an end, you have one more week. If you're here and you were rather excited about it coming to an end, you only have one more week. With all that said, let's begin where we started. The book of Acts opens with the resurrected Christ teaching his apostles about the kingdom of God, where he eventually makes the point that the kingdom of God would no longer include a primarily Jewish citizenship, but it would be comprised of a citizenship from people from every nation on earth. In Acts 9, the resurrected Lord Jesus confronted and called the persecuting Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, into his service. No more to act against the Lord Jesus and the kingdom that he was building, but to be his greatest missionary, probably of all time, both to Jews and to Gentiles. Paul was later sent out from the church that had been uh, formed in Antioch, he was sent out three times on three separate journeys to proclaim Christ. Now, he would always go to the Jews first, but was regularly met with resistance to his message. And so Paul said on two different occasions, once in Acts 13 and once in Acts 18, that he would be focusing his ministry efforts in those places on the Gentiles. But whether he said it or not, this was typically his M.O. He would go to the Jews, and once, and if rejected, he would go to the Gentiles. 
And on his third missionary journey out, he resolved to go to Rome, the Gentile capital of the world at the time. And last week, we looked at uh, part of chapter 28 where Paul does, in fact, reach Rome, probably some five years after his decision to go there in the first place. So much for the plans of mice and men. Today, though, we begin to bring this long, wonderful book to a close. We pick up with Paul. Paul is in Rome. He's in his own dwelling, but he is under Roman custody. He's handcuffed to a Roman guard, and he's awaiting his trial before Caesar Nero, to whom he had appealed months prior when he had stood before Festus. And we see Luke recount for us a sad and sadly predictable final exchange that Paul has with the Jews of his day before declaring once more that his ministry has turned to the Gentiles. So let me read these verses. Chapter 28, beginning in verse 17. We'll read through verse 28. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will, see, you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed." lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Before I outline the sermon, I want to make a quick comment about the vanishing verse 29. You likely noticed that verse 29 is missing in your Bible. I think if you're using the King James uh, version, then it's still there. But uh, in all, or at least most others, verse 29 is missing. There's probably a footnote, however. It tells you that some manuscripts include the line, 
And when he had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. Something to that effect. Uh, The deal is that this sentence is likely an insertion by later scribes, either as an accidental duplication of what was said almost verbatim in verse 25, or perhaps something inserted to uh, smooth out the transition from verses 28 to 30. Either way, it's just a, it's restating what was already said in verse 25. It changes nothing in the point of the narrative, but I did want to mention it to you uh, just so that anyone tempted to sit there and scratch your heads the whole time, um, I didn't want you to miss the rest of the sermon wondering where verse 29 went. That's where it went, um, in that it never existed, apparently, originally. So, then, uh, what we're going to do is take this sermon up in two parts. First, in verses 17 through 23, we will consider Paul's attempt to evangelize the local Jewish leaders there in Rome. And then in 24 through 29 or 28, however you're counting, we'll see their rejection of Paul and his Messiah as well as their rejection of the Jews. So, Paul's attempt to evangelize and the the outcome of the Jews' uh, rejection of him will be our two parts. Look with me in the first place then at verses 17 to 23 where Paul seeks a meeting with the local Jewish leaders and he presents the gospel to them. Luke tells us that after only three days uh, arriving in Rome, Paul asked for an audience with the local Jewish leaders to which they agree. And then he tells them what, if we've been here through Acts, what we already know. Despite his innocence of every charge brought against him, he was nevertheless made a prisoner of the Romans. The Roman leaders, therefore, could find no justification to put him to death. Although it seemed that they really wanted to find one in order to appease the Jews. But they couldn't find one. And so they wanted to set him free. But the Jews objected to this, and so he appealed to Caesar. But he tells them that he himself has no charge to bring against his nation. And so he calls for this meeting with the Jewish leaders in Rome to clear up the the issues. He wants to explain to them that it it is only because of the hope of Israel, that is, the hope of the resurrection, that he is wearing his chains. And for no other reason. He is no criminal. And their reply is somewhat predictable, given the lack of concern that anyone so far has really had for law and order up to this point. They say, we haven't heard anything. We don't know anything about you. No one wrote us. And the people who have come here before you, they haven't said anything uh, about you either. But we do want to hear from you. We'd like to know what you have to say. We don't know anything about you or this trial or your status as a criminal, but we have heard of this sect that you represent. And what have they heard? Everybody hates it. It is spoken against everywhere. So they appoint a day. And the Jews on this day come to him at his lodging. Luke recounts in large numbers, far more than attended the original meeting. They had drummed up lots of interest, and so they come to Paul at his house. 
And for the whole day, he expounded to them, as he always did, from the Scriptures, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. He testified to the kingdom of God. In short, the kingdom of God has come and is coming. And it has come in this man, Jesus, who is the Christ. The Messiah, the the Old Testament anointed of the Lord who had been expected for all of these many years. Centuries, in fact. He has come and is here in Jesus. And this is how Luke describes Paul's ministry over and over all throughout Acts. This is really nothing new. Luke is adamant to help Theophilus, the man to whom he's writing, and really to all subsequent readers. He wants us to understand the Old Testament hope concerning God's kingdom is inextricably tied up in the Messiah, which is a point that the Jews would have accepted. God's kingdom and God's Messiah, they go together, of course. But he also wants us to see that the the New Testament reveals this Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, who was born, lived, died, and overcame death through a resurrection, and is now the ruling king over the universe. This, however, is a point that the Jews would not accept. Repeatedly. Not to say no Jews accepted it, then or now, But as a whole, throughout Paul's ministry, they really struggled with it. A crucified Messiah? Impossible. He was here to bring the kingdom, to bring the heat, to take over from our Roman bondage. But the message was simple. As difficult as it was for people to accept it, to submit to it, the message is simple. The kingdom has come and is coming in full through this man, Jesus, who is the Christ. He is the anointed son of Psalm 2, who would inherit the nations. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who would die, but then through death, overcome death, and receive newness of life, and provide salvation for all who would look to him. And so this is what Luke sets before us once more. Paul, laboring all day long, even in chains, to proclaim this hope of Israel to his Jewish audience. So that's his attempt at evangelization, what we see him do over and over. Look with me in the second place, verses 24 through 28, where we we see the Jews and their response. But we also see God's response to them. Luke tells us in verse 24 that some of them were convinced. Others disbelieved. Others would not believe. And predictably, this led to an argument among them all. And it seems that probably not all of them, but vast majority of those present left. But they left after a a concluding thought that Paul lays on them. He likely discerns the debate, the disagreement, the unbelief, and he quotes Isaiah. And he says, the Holy Spirit was right when he spoke through Isaiah to your fathers. And he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Go to this people and say you will never 
or you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now this is an interesting use of Isaiah by, by Luke. There's a lot that we could say about it. I'll try not to uh, just talk about all the things that are interesting to me. Um, but get to the point. Since the New Testament is written in Greek, anytime the Old Testament is quoted, it has to be translated. Because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Some parts in Aramaic. So if the Old Testament is quoted by the, the authors of the New Testament, they have to translate it into Greek. Now, they either did this themselves by translating directly from a Hebrew text, or they use an, an existing translation of the day. Uh, for most of them, this would have been uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, or perhaps some other Greek translation. Sometimes they would even recite uh, the, the Old Testament text from memory in Greek as they wrote. Now, this normally presents no problems, and, and really it just serves as a validation of the use of translations. If the New Testament writers can translate from Hebrew into Greek, what's to stop us from translating from Hebrew and Greek into English? And it's a really encouraging thing. But sometimes you run into sticky situations and issues. For instance, in Acts 28, Luke's quotation of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 from some Greek translation, probably the Septuagint, when he quotes it, it ends up communicating something a bit different than what is contained in the Hebrew text. Now, in Luke's case, here, it makes sense that he's quoting from the Greek Bible of the day. He's writing to a Greek man. But it still raises the question, what do we do with this difference between the Septuagint and the Hebrew text? If you flip to Isaiah 6 in your Bibles and you read these verses quoted, you'll see that Isaiah 6, what you have here, if you flip to it, you'll see Isaiah 6. In there, God commands Isaiah to preach to Israel in a certain way in order to make the people's hearts dull and their ears unhearing and their eyes unseeing. He commands him to go and preach and so make their hearts dull, ears unhearing, eyes unseen. But Luke's quotation of Isaiah 6 implies that the Lord commanded Isaiah to preach to Israel in a certain way because their hearts were already dull. Their ears unhearing, their eyes unseen. Right? In other words, in Isaiah 6, he says, Make this people's heart dull. Acts 28, quoting... Isaiah 6 says, because this people's heart has grown dull. So what do we do? Well, in quoting this, the Greek text rather than the Hebrew, Luke is drawing out a rather nuanced application regarding the prophetic judgment that Isaiah was called to herald. Meaning, Luke is aiming to give an explanation 
for the Jews' rejection of Paul's message and Messiah, as well as to give a warning for future readers of the book not to respond like they did. In other words, Luke is clear. The culpability for the Jews' rejection of the Messiah, his message, and his messengers cannot be laid at God's feet as though he had done something unfair to them. Nor does it lie in Jesus' lack of revelation of God or his own messianic power or the legitimacy of the commission that he gives his apostles. Rather, the culpability lies squarely in the people's obstinacy themselves. Therefore, he says, in effect, don't do the same thing. J.A. Alexander helpfully writes, in this fearful process of hardening of hearts, there are three distinguishable agencies expressly or implicitly described. The ministerial agency of the prophet, the judicial agency of God, and the suicidal agency of the people themselves. All right? He says there are three agencies expressed in this hardening. The ministerial agency of the prophet, the judicial agency of God, and the suicidal agency of the people themselves. And the Hebrew text of Isaiah 6, along with its various quotations in Greek and applications in the New Testament, work to bring out all three. While the ministerial agency of the prophet is front-loaded in Isaiah 6, God commands Isaiah, go, say to this people, and make their heart dull. The judicial agency of God is front-loaded in John's Gospel. When he quotes it, he says, God hardened their hearts. And here in Acts 28 and a few other places uh, in Matthew quotes it as well, we see the suicidal agency of the people being front-loaded. Their hearts were already hard. They closed their own eyes. So we see these three things working together here. And we'll come back to, to that. But we also see in Paul, as he applies it to his present moment, we we see that this this means that neither the unbelieving Israelites of the 8th century B.C., to whom Isaiah preached, nor the Jews of the 1st century A.D., to whom Paul preached, neither of them could escape the reality that they persisted in responding wrongly to the revelation of God's Word given to them. The Jews in Paul's day, in other words, were behaving just like their forefathers. We saw in Acts 7, Stephen says, Is there any prophet that your fathers did not persecute? And yet, also like their forefathers, if they would receive and not reject God's word, and so turn to the Lord in faith, they would be healed. But they didn't, and so they wouldn't be. And because Paul can apply this some 700 plus years later to his day, we see that the word stands for us today. In other words, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And yet, we must not deny 
that God is the sovereign Lord. God is the one who uses prophets like Isaiah to dull hearts, to plug ears, and to close eyes. There's no way around it. Now, there's been no little ink spilled over trying to reconcile these two things. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And of course, it makes sense that we would struggle with this reality as humans. And I think that there are better and worse attempts that have been made to reconcile them. There are countless books that you can read, and you should read them. They would be helpful to you. But here's where we need to land at some level for us. Without even reading those books. Just coming to the Bible on its own, and even after we read those books, we need to land somewhere here, I think. The Bible is much less interested in logically squaring those things up with each other to our satisfaction than it is in setting those two things, God's responsibility, man, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, setting those two things side by side and simply calling for our faith and submission to God and His Word in response. The Bible is less interested in making me feel perfectly content with the way those things fit together than it is in saying, they do, trust me, you need to believe it and obey the Lord. Now, we may still be tempted to resist this. At some level in our heart, we may, be, we may feel the need to say that God's sovereignty negates man's responsibility. It has to. Or to say that man's responsibility negates God's sovereignty. But the reality is that these two things are the context in which the other one operates. God regularly and consistently exercises His sovereign rule through the responsible agency of man. And man exercises his responsibility and agency completely in accord with the sovereign will of God. Put another way, God never violates or does harm to the will of the creature, as our confession explicitly states in chapter 4, verse 1. And yet, the creature never acts in any way that can outflank or outmaneuver the will of God. Such that whatever God has decreed will unalterably come to pass. And man is perfectly responsible and accountable for his own actions. This, of course, is often a very difficult pill to swallow. But it is good medicine for the soul as it demands of us both faith and action. We must trust in the goodness and loving kindness of God, knowing that nothing ever comes to pass apart from His will. But it also calls us to obedient action, knowing that God's MO is to work through the thoughts, desires, and choices of men. And so he lays this condemnation upon his hearers. You have persisted in unbelief. God is rejecting you, he says to his Jewish audience. 
And for a third and final time, he says, the Jewish nation's consistent rejection of the Lord and His anointed, the message of salvation is to go to the Gentiles. The intensity of this passage's clear and condemning word for those, not just Jews, but anyone who persists in unbelief is matched perfectly by its clear and hopeful word for those who do not persist in unbelief. This passage, while speaking a strong word of judgment against the nation of Israel as a whole, holds out tremendous hope for those who belong to the nations, who are Gentiles. Verse 28, they will listen. Now, as we've seen all throughout this book, this does not mean that Paul is a Jew hater. It does not mean that Jews are hopelessly cut off from the grace of God. It does not mean that no Jew can be saved. Nor does it mean that every Gentile will be saved. What it does mean is that while the church is now predominantly to be made up of Gentile converts as the message of the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, the truth is that Jews and Gentiles alike, therefore all people on planet earth, may and must come to God through faith in King Jesus. And so this passage has a word for everyone, Jew or Gentile. The word is this, flee the judgment, turn to the Lord, Be healed. And do not persist in unbelief. Well, that brings us to some application. Two points. The first, have you listened? Not to me to God have you turned from your blindness and hardness of heart to the living God have you been healed healed of your spiritual calamity and sickness that has been wreaking havoc on your soul have you turned or do you persist in sin and unbelief If you're still in the dark, eyes shut and ears covered, I would urge you, open your eyes. Come to the light. The warning has been set. Persist in your willful rejection and you will only find more hardness of heart. You will only find more darkness, more silence, and it will all be to your great harm. But if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Turn, and you will be healed. The second point of application is this. This hope in the sovereign Lord who opens ears and hearts and eyes. This hope should motivate us. It should drive us. It should lead our work. It is the engine that fuels us 
It's the fuel that drives our engine for this mission. Our mission as a church. Look at it. The end of verse 28. They will listen. Do you hear it? They will listen. We don't know who the individuals are that will listen. But God does. He told Paul in Corinth in chapter 18, Don't give up. I have many people in this city. And a version of that is held out to us. God has people left in the world that He is calling to Himself. There are people who will listen when it is their time to listen. And so we must go. We must go out into Rinkin, trusting that there are people here who will listen. I was just... The other, this week, I was stressing out over this passage, walking, doing laps around the soccer field, and I was just watching cars drive by. I was thinking, how many of these people have listened? How many people are yet to listen? But it's not just true for he, us here in Rinkin. All of North America, South America, Africa, Europe, Asia, Australia, all across the world, across town, across the street, or across the other side of the house. There is hope, friends. Do you realize that? Moms and dads, do you expect that God has willed to bring your children into His kingdom through your patient, persevering love, discipline, and prayers? I trust that He has. Don't give up. Kids, Do you expect that God is willed to bring your brothers and sisters into the kingdom through your selfless example and constant prayers? For anyone here who has unbelieving parents or unbelieving extended family members or an unbelieving spouse or unbelieving co-workers, unbelieving friends and neighbors, are you eagerly expecting them to listen Are you expecting the salvation of God to come to them through your faithful witness and praying? All day long, Paul taught them from the Scriptures. He would have taught them day after day after day if he could. Are they worse sinners than you, these unbelievers in your life? Of course not. Is God unwilling or unable to save them? We don't know the secret, eternal plan and mind of God, but we know His revealed will. The message has been sent and is being sent to the nations. And they will listen. Now we see with the Apostle Paul, it is difficult to bear witness Our efforts often seem like they are going nowhere. But this isn't the end of Paul's ministry. We'll consider a version of that next week when we see what Luke writes in verses 30 and 31. Here's the deal. God's kingdom is on the move. Take heart and let us press on together.